Hello, everybody. This is Darren Redman, and I'm with Aaron Carr again for the first time. Actually, the second time, but uh, you know nobody's keeping score at <laughs> home. And if you are, get a hobby. Anyway, Aaron Carr, thank you for being my guest today. You are the author of really one of three, and I'll go over that in a minute. I think multimedia, whether in your case and and with David Post's case, books um, that really speak to addiction and recovery and trauma and all that goes in it in a way that has never been done before. And that's not hyperbole. That is just fact. Uh, you live this kind of world and you know, I'm in that as well. And um, your voice, you know, February 5th, 2020, your book comes out, you know, HarperCollins. And it immediately, maybe not immediately, but very quickly has an effect on people because you changed the paradigm, you changed the conversation. So, you know, um, Erica Carr is the author of Strung Out. I strongly suggest that on my social media, I'm gonna be putting my suggestions for the holidays. This is a book, whether you have somebody who's going through anything or not, one, it's just brilliantly written. Uh, two, it's from somebody who has an advice column. You can't go wrong with that. Um, but um, I'm gonna start there. Aaron. When you put out Strung Out, and again, it's called Strung Out, One Last Hit and the Lies That Nearly Killed Me. So accurate. They actually changed the subtitle for the paperback. Yeah, why did they do that? <laughs> was that did they I, do that with your, um, with your blessing or was it like- Yeah, hey, I mean, you know? well, I mean, they said we want to do this and I said, okay. I mean, part of it was that, you know, my book came out like on, you know, 25th of February. So 10 days like before everything start, shut down. And I think the paperback came out in, um, it was a September, it was August 31st, but a September release of 2021. They wanted the cover, like you can see the two covers, they wanted a new cover mm -hmm. and a new subtitle so that it felt like more uplifting and hopeful. I think because we were in, you know, mid pandemic in such mm -hmm. like a weird transitional period. Marketing, um, wrong yeah, with that. Marketing. <laughs> But I but, do. I mean, I really do love the original subtitle too. <laughs> me, me too. And uh, and and the, the wonderful blue version right behind you is the one I have in my house. Right. You know. Um, but um, and and by the way, um, this really is a book, people, that you should pass on to other people uh, and read. Uh, well, here's an idea: just buy them a copy. Uh, let's, let's let's help the uh, author and the publisher <laughs> and everybody else. But um, because it's just good information to have. And, um, but did you have any idea that your book would really have a paradigm shift or help create a paradigm shift as much as it has? I mean, of course, like I, you know, I hoped that it would spark conversation. And I mean, you know, there's like two parts of it. It's like, there's a part of me, like the writer part of me that like, of course you want your work to be successful. But like beyond that, I think what, what became increasingly important to me <clears throat> was um, the effect that it had on the people who read it. And, and, you know, I definitely heard from a lot of people who had experienced addiction and felt really sort of seen and understood and, and whatnot. But the thing that, that I have been overwhelmingly pleased by, and thank you for the kind words about the book. It really means a lot. Um, the thing that has been so wonderful is hearing from people who have never experienced addiction firsthand. They might, you know, they might have like somebody in their extended family who struggled with addiction and they've written to me and said that they couldn't believe how much they related to 
in the book, even though they hadn't struggled with addiction. Right. And I think that's really important because I think that we, you know, historically have tended to put alcoholism and addiction sort of like as this sidecar to mental health issues. And it's really at, at its heart um, has the same sort of internal mechanisms as anxiety, depression, all of these other so sorts of things that a lot of people struggle with. No, listen, and, and all you have to do is walk in the world and you're gonna meet a lot of people who struggle with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the old way of looking at things is said, you tough it up, stiff up a lip, keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, people love way before Twitter and way before social media, we love cookie cuttering people. We love right. to template people and would say, you know, well, you're being weak. No, mm -hmm. what I'm being is being honest. It's very strong. Like when I saw my dad go through his alcoholism, when I, when I drove him the detox, the strongest point I've ever seen him in his life, 20 year New York City policeman, US Marshal after that, mm -hmm. was when he was crying, giving me his wedding ring. And um, I said to him, I said, this is the strongest I've ever seen you in, in your weakest moment because you allowed right. me to see that strength. You know, and, and we as a culture need to continue to embrace that. Mm -hmm. because we can't ask people to go inside and, and face whatever it is they're facing if we're asking them also by the, by the way i don't want to be inconvenienced with your with your pity party so you know don't tell me well right. no you can't have it both ways right so what i was going to say in my long-winded way earlier was i believe that david post's book the way of air mm -hmm. uh, and um you know put out uh, by sandra Jones publishing which by the way, won 2022 independent uh, press award. And mm -hmm. uh, I bring him up because we both really admired him. And mm -hmm. in a weird sort of unfortunate way is um, it's through his passing that you and I got to meet. Right. You know, and um, I know that you too changed the way that I viewed a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I, so I suggest people get these books, get Wit of Air, get um, strung out and then I would suggest to see the movie Body Brokers mm -hmm. to see what goes on in a, in a lot of these treatment centers right you know the pay to play kind of thing and mm -hmm. um, and it's just the whole and they might not want you to get well everybody let's put it that way yeah. as long as that insurance card works let's keep pumping that mm -hmm. um, and by the way there are great places as well don't get me wrong but the three of you in, in the case of Body Brokers, John Swab and Jeremy M. Rosen with Roxwell Films, you put out movies that were uh, 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 works of art, rather, creativity that speak in a different way. Mm -hmm. And you guys did not collaborate in the corner somewhere. Right. So I just found that very interesting that, um, you know, there are people who, oh, all of a sudden a harm reduction. But it, it's very organic, actually. Mm -hmm. that people are saying, you know what, after 105 years, of doing things the same way is not working. Right. You know, it's not working. So, you know, when you look back, if you don't mind me asking you sure. this, are you amazed that that kind of your story is resonating and then others have similar stories and you all at the same time are telling the same story? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess it doesn't surprise me. I think it, what surprises me is that it took us so long <laughs> to talk about it. I mean, I think, you know, um, our sort of model for treating recovery since, you know, the first half of the 20th century has been based on like a 12 step model. And 
while that works for some people, and it's certainly, you know, look, it saved my life at a certain point, but it, it wasn't the ultimate answer for me. Um, I think that it can be really, really helpful for people in conjunction with other things. And, and, but I think that there is this sort of black and white thinking historically about the only way to treat addiction is this way. And that has led to the deaths of many, many people. Way too many, way too many. And it's interesting because the other, not to be a quote unquote shill for these wonderful people that are are creating uh, in early January, you know, Mary Beth O'Connor has a wonderful book coming Mm -hmm. out called from junkie to judge. And Mm -hmm. she talks directly about what you're talking about. 12 steps didn't work for her. Right. You know, but other things do. Right. And and, and I think that's so important that that we let people know that you're not a failure if that does, if this doesn't work for you. And I've had conversations. I have friends who are, you know, deeply entrenched in, in 12 step recovery and who've asked me like, well, did you really work the steps in earnest? And when I tell you that, like, I was in so much emotional and mental distress in sobriety, I worked those steps to the best of my ability. And I really wanted it. It wasn't that I didn't want it or I wasn't ready. I really, really wanted it. Mm -hmm. But I had issues that weren't going to be solved by doing the steps, the step work. And they certainly laid a foundation for me, but I really needed to address what was at the core of the issue, you know? And, and I think that one of the missteps in, in how we've treated addiction is that we've relied so heavily on the disease model that we are dis we in in some ways have discounted treating the actual cause for many folks. I don't believe that every single person who struggles with alcoholism and addiction, that it's just genetic. And the second they take a drink, they're off and running for some people that is the case, but we know from looking at, at brain scans, how trauma rewires our neural pathways and Um, you know, for me, which I've said many times, like I turned toward drugs and in my case, heroin so that I wouldn't kill myself. (laughs) I mean, it was my, it, it, it worked in the sense that it kept me alive until it stopped working. Right. It was, this is why we develop maladaptive coping mechanisms is because we don't have other coping skills at our disposal. The good news is, is that I think that with you know, with different forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, we rewire those neural pathways. So it, it doesn't become a, a life sentence of, of I'm, you know, I'm going to be an addict and alcoholic my whole life. And it's always going to be like this. And I'm always going to be sick. I don't look at myself today as a sick person. You're not. And you know, and, and I don't have any, I don't, I don't mind like referring to myself as an addict, but I, I also am like, I'm not an addict anymore. I'm a, I'm, I've, it's been 20 years in, in March since, since right, I right. used drugs. So, right. you know, but I'm also like, I'm not, I, 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 I don't see any difference between me and somebody who is on long-term, um, you know, medicated assisted treatment, whether it's methadone or suboxone, buprenorphine, whatever, it's none of my business. I don't care. Like if that's their recovery, you know, and I think 
that's such an important um, shift that's started in, in, in treatment is that, you know, we've had to look at harm reduction because, you know, in 2021, we lost what a hundred and well, I've heard seen two, two numbers, 107,000 or 120,000. So, you know, well yeah. over a hundred thousand. Yeah, no, I get it. And, and listen, one of the things I did right before we started to record this conversation was I took my blood pressure medicine. Mm-hmm. So you take your Zaboxone. Right, right. Who cares? I don't care. You're living, right. you're breathing, you're, you're, you're helping your family, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really get um, concerned when people just love label. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an island. And listen, bouncing in New York City, you, we, we have that similar background with New York, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going to clubs. And let me tell you something. People would say to me sometimes, well, you stayed away from drugs. You were smart enough. No, you want reality? Reality was I was too poor to buy it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, well, you know, don't, you know, like, let, let's right. stop bullshitting. Right? right. Let's just call reality. Was right. like, I was just struggling to get by. That's why beer worked for me. Right. <laughs> because right. if I had the money, I would have been there too. So let's stop trying to kind of label it. But, and like you said, somebody who's hasn't had, you know, a drug in, in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And by the way, who hasn't had a illegal drug? Because they're probably still taking right. cholesterol medicine. And so right. you can really start cutting oh, that I baby mean, up. Look, look, I mean, I, I have ADHD and I take medication for my ADHD, that's a stimulant. I don't get mm-hmm. high off of it, right. but there are plenty of people in the recovery community who think that if you take ADHD medication, you're not sober. And I think that's complete BS because I have seen people, especially now with this, like, you know, this shortage with Adderall, there are people who have extreme trouble getting their medication and they start to completely fall apart in other areas of their life, which often leads people back to illicit drugs as a substitute for the medication that they need. And I think that that's a really important distinction, the same way that a person, I don't believe we should deny people who are in pain, pain medication. Agreed. You know, like I had, I had surgery. I had a completion thyroidectomy in June and I, they gave me you know, drugs in the hospital. And I had some, when I came home, I'm really careful about it. Not because I, 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 for fortunately or unfortunately, I think I used up all my fun receptors because when I have had to take pain medication, it doesn't, I don't get the release that I used to get. And I'm so like, I, I, the, the second that I feel that effect, my next thought is like withdrawal. So mm-hmm. I don't like to take it for more than a couple of days because I'm so, um, I, the idea of even going through withdrawal because you had a dependence from like a surgery is so frightening to me <laughs> that I would rather just be in discomfort. And I think, you know, but, but again, somebody who has pain, I don't, that's not my place and it shouldn't be the DEA's place to decide I if somebody totally needs agree. pain medication because mm-hmm. our, you know, I've talked about this a lot as much as we want to blame, you know, drugs coming in over the borders or, or dealers or whatever. It's complete BS. We have the overdose crisis we have because of the policies carried out by the drug enforcement agency. A hundred percent. We are not going to solve this problem until we stop trying to 
go after the people who are making and supplying the drugs and start treating the reason that there's a demand for them. Yeah, and we're gonna and until we stop telling people. And you said something, and, and I'm sorry because I love to be prepared. You were on a wonderful podcast four days ago, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the young woman, um, and I wanted to give her a shout out as well because uh, it, it's great. And uh, some oh, on Alyssa, Al- Alyssa Alters, yeah, Alyssa Alters, that's yeah. it. Yes, yeah, and Alter Life, which I love that name by the way. And I'm a big fan of you know what? Let's support each other instead of saying, right. "Oh, can't mention that name." Right. She did a great job, and and. You mentioned some of that stuff there, and um, you know it's so important for people to realize that. Hey, here's reality. Reality is that you know if it's not the guy who got injured. You said this so eloquently the other day mm-hmm. on Ultra Show. It's not the person who got injured and now they become an addict. It's mm-hmm. more like they're in pain, and then for whatever reason you take them off it, and and, and now where are we going to go? And you're going to go to the kid that has the right. press. You're going to go to somebody you know up the street, and right. and and. and you know, the biggest drug pusher in America is, and I'm talking to hyperbole, but right. is, is grandma's medicine cabinet. Right. Is your parents' medicine cabinet. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, you know, I'm, I'm a, my favorite glass of, glass of whiskey is the next one with my cigar. But, you mm-hmm. know, this is where we learn this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we have to say that. And there's something else that, that you said on, when you and I spoke on the previous podcast, mm-hmm. I had, which is so true. And this is something that you spoke about. And uh, I just, I love hearing it. You are selling a book, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at the people who may buy your book and saying, you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. This didn't become an issue until people who had, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes and white skin started right. seeing the effects. And, right. and thank you, because right. that's just reality. And it's yeah. I'm not blaming, you know, it's just reality. It is. Mm-hmm. That's like saying the toast is burnt because it's burnt. Right. You're going to blame it. It is. And right. it, it didn't seem to become an issue right. until all of a sudden it started happening in, mm-hmm. in upper middle class white America. Right. Of course. You know, I mean, at the time that I was using part of the reason I got away from it with it for so long is that there it was, you know, pre opioid crisis. Um, I mean, I was still using when the opioid crisis started, but it was before it became so, you know, we really started cracking down on things. And and so I didn't come from the type of family I didn't look like what people thought a drug addict looked like in the beginning <laughs> you know right. what I mean I, I for a long time hit it I didn't start that way I was in you know I was in a prep school I was had lots of friends I had this came from like a quote-unquote good family all of those things so I wasn't I was an anomaly and now obviously we see that that that's different I mean it's the good news bad news the good news is that like now maybe now the hope is, and it's part of like the work that I do in advocacy is that there really is a bipartisan effort, um, in terms of looking at our failed drug policies and, and increasing treatment options for people. And, uh, you know, that's really my goal is to educate as many people, regardless of political affiliation on what needs to be done to stymie this problem. Because even if you want, even if you don't care about the addicts, like somebody's like, I don't care. These people are weak. They made these choices. The economic repercussions on us as a whole are enormous. And, you know, if you just look at the data, spending the money on prevention and then long-term treatment 
and by long-term treatment, I don't mean rehab, I mean the long-term aftercare um, with mental health services that are needed that should be subsidized. If we spent the money there, we'd be spending a whole lot less money in the other areas that to, to address social problems. And that's just, you just can look at the numbers and see that. So um, it makes economic sense if that's what drives people. It, it makes um, sense in terms of, of, you know, I believe that we are as sick as our sickest members of society. So, you know, if we're not taking care of people, that shows the health of us as a, as a society. And, and you're right, you know, something you said at the beginning about this idea of like, you know, suck it up, blah, blah, blah. We very much, you know, sort of like have this long standing American ethos of like, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but that doesn't work the same for everybody dependent on all of these other factors like mental health issues, like being born into systemic poverty, like racism, like other cultural issues. I mean, it's just, that's, people might not like it, but that is true, you know? It's very interesting when people, and again, you know, the word truth could be somewhat nebulous to some people, Mm -hmm. but what you're talking about is just truth. It's just right. fact. You just look right. at it. And it's interesting because part of the American ethos is also, I want the truth. I'm going to find the right. truth unless it's inconvenient, of course. Right. Oh, yeah. You know? Right. And I think that's where you coming out the way you did with your book is a double-edged sword because I was able to see it on the other side because, you know, the same people that at first, when I was trying to give away Narcan for free, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and in a community that was all upper middle class white people, mm-hmm. you know, um, they want nothing to do with it. What do you say? My kid's sick, but this or that, whatever the case may be. Then they see you mm-hmm. and, and they're like, wait a minute, that's me. Mm-hmm. So it's what I call realistic modeling. And that's, right. it's needed. You know, yeah. it's, it's important because they're like, wait yeah. a minute. You know, one of the things like that that's happened since the book came out is I've I've spoken to so many parents who've lost kids to overdose, and these are accidental overdoses. You know, some of these kids had substance use issues. Some of them really didn't. They were experimenting. I I've talked to parents who've lost 14, 15, 16 year old kids that came from good families, quote unquote. Right. So, um. I know that it's challenging for parents to think that, to kind of confront the, the concept that their kid would, you know, turn to drugs, try drugs, whatever. Sure, not all of us wish that they you know, wouldn't, but we know the decisions that we made. And it wasn't just people who turned out to be addicts. It's people who also experimented. I mean, you know, I'm Generation X and I think I was listening to Maya um, Salovitz on a podcast, and now I'm trying to remember what the statistic was, but it was like 80% of Gen Xers tried cocaine at least once, okay? That's a really high percentage. <laughs> and if those, if that same percentage existed today, yeah, then we would, you know, there's, you know, how much of the cocaine in major cities has fentanyl in it, a large percentage. So it's just, it's a, it's a different, a different time. It's a different world. And I think that in terms of drug education with our children, it's about, you know, giving them very neutral information about substances. This, you know, the the idea that 
we should make fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. This is bullshit. I mean, fentanyl as a as a medication was created for severe pain. They give fentanyl in ambulances all the time, right? When somebody has had like some sort of traumatic injury, but it's measured and legal and serves a purpose, yes, right? Yes, yes. The reason that we have so much fentanyl in the market is not because drug dealers want to kill their clients. It's because it's a much less risk to have small amounts of chemicals to create this compound than to have an agricultural crop in for heroin or cocaine, which is a much greater risk, much greater risk, right? So um, my point being that like, I don't ever no. want to demonize any substance. I, 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 love, where, I love where you're going because we're- It's not mindset. like, it's like, you know, I don't care if somebody wants to smoke pot or somebody wants to drink, I don't care. I don't care, you know, I mean, t- truth be told, I don't really care if so if somebody, it's, you know, there's people like Dr. Carl Hart, Columbia professor, who's written about this a lot about using heroin casually, right? Like a couple mm-hmm. times a year. He got, but he, he, but he, he, he got torched. In, he in, does so in like Switzerland in mm-hmm. with like pharmaceutical grade heroin, right? This is not the same thing. And I'm, you know, that wouldn't work for me, mm-hmm. but I don't care. What do I care if he does? It doesn't affect me at all. Right. So my point being that like the information that I, I give my children and that I give parents when, when they ask like how they should broach the subject, first of all, I mean, well, going back, I think that, that drug education starts way earlier. It starts with not ever mentioning drugs. It starts with talking about emotional regulation, modeling emotional regulation, which we all even those of us who've been through a lot of therapy, we all struggle with emotional regulation when we're under stress, right? Um, I've gotten better and better and better at it, which is the good news, right? Because I've had a lot of therapy, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and a lot of practice because I see the result for myself and for the people around me when I model good coping skills. So it's that, it's talking to our kids about whatever it is we struggled with at the age that they're at without demanding that they tell us anything because it creates a a line of communication where they trust us because we've trusted them with information without demanding anything. And then when we do give them information about actual substances, giving neutral information about substances, and then educating them in harm reduction, not as a green light to go use drugs. With my older son, I made him do naloxone training with me in the state of New York. You can do an online training. They send you like, you get like a little certification, which also comes with liability insurance and everything. I have ordered a large amount of fentanyl testing strips, which are also available. It depends on the state, but, um, you know, they're available free from a lot of harm reduction organizations. I put them in his, his backpack. He's in college. He's here in New York, but he's in college. And you know, he kind of rolled his eyes at first. I'm like, it's not even that I think you're going to need it necessarily, but you, the chances of you or a friend at some point you're going out, he's had friends who've like, they've gone out and like taken Molly. Well, at a certain point, 40% of the Molly in New York city had fentanyl in it. So I wanted him to know. So not just for himself, but for other people, like how would you test if you have a pill, how do you test it? for fentanyl 
So you have the information that may not stop somebody from doing it, but it will at the very least maybe make them take it at a slower rate. And then having naloxone, it's just common sense. And I think this is something that we, you know, in terms of having the conversations about harm reduction really happen fifth or sixth grade before they get to middle school. You know, I, I, I once again, I, I totally agree. And, and you and David put me down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely with the naloxone, I get, I get much less pushback now. And yeah. Very, very, I go to a lot of schools now and I'm talking about junior high and, and, right. and it's interesting because the new line is on the fentanyl test strips. Mm-hmm. People are like, no, because it's just I'm uncomfortable. And I'm like, you used to be un- uncomfortable in the locks. Right. It's a tool. Right. Put it in your shed. You just, right. you never know. You may want it. You may right. have to have. And then there are people like some, and again, I just use old New York sitting in a tavern kind of methodology. Right. They'll say, well, you're just sending the kids to use it. I'm saying, no, listen, let me tell you how kids work. You were a kid. I was a kid. Mm-hmm. If they're even thinking about it, they're going to do it. Right. Most likely. And, and they're there, and I want them to think that there's something wrong with that. You might as well say, why are you wearing a seatbelt? You're going to just give them a license to drive faster. Right. And right. they get it most, most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to talk, because we both have to go soon, but I want to talk a little bit about Ask Aaron. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, I'm on your social all the time. Like, that almost seems like a labor of love. It is. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, there, were, there was a time. So I started it in 2009 on my old, like, blog on Blogspot. And then it was on a website called Ravishly for several years. And then um, when I left Ravishly, I just had it on my own website. And now I have a Substack, which... I have yet to monetize, but will be adding like a paid tier. I'm still going to make the column free for every subscriber. I have about 10,000 subscribers, um, but I'd like to offer like some additional benefits for paid prescribers so that for a few dollars a month that like, you know, there's a, there's a chat feature on Substack and, and be able to like have more engagement that way. But it is a labor of love. I mean, I, I've been doing it for so long, like I can't even imagine ever giving it up. <laughs> and I feel like a, like it's not even just a responsibility, but I feel privileged that there are so many people who trust me with- You earn that, my friend. Their, their, their lives with their, you know, when I say their lives, I don't mean like no. I'm saving their life, but I mean with their, with the information in their lives and, you know, I get a lot of questions. I can't answer them all. And one of the things that I hope to do with the Substack, like doing like sort of rapid fire answers is being mm-hmm. able to answer more questions because I answer one a week and I get, you know, an average of 30, 40 questions a week now. So I, it's impossible for me to get to all of them. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a labor of love. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask you one question in, mm-hmm. in that realm before I mm-hmm. let you go. And this kind of ties into everything we're talking about. So what do you say to that person, whether they're just entering recovery, mm-hmm. they're, they're not in recovery yet, or the young person who's just leaving college, like our sons are just about the same mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just trying to figure out the world. Mm-hmm. And here's specifically what I mean. Don't be obstinate. Don't be stubborn. Make sure you take good advice. But mm-hmm. isn't it funny that the people sometimes in the closest circle, they give you the worst advice and they are actually very detrimental to your progress. 
Um, right. So how do you teach somebody to juggle that? It, because there's no template to that, if I use that term that we talked about earlier. Right. I mean, I think part of it is it's they, to some degree, it has to like be learned through lived experience. But I do say this to people when they have that sort of dynamic is that there are often times where we have codependent or unhealthy relationships with people, whether they're family members or romantic partners or friends, um, where they are they are under like the false impression that they need sort of you to stay unhealthy in that area because yes. their dynamics depend on it and they don't know how to function without it. Um, it's all, you know, it's, this is not like a conscious malicious thing, but you see it so often, you know, certainly in families where, where there is addiction, right. You sometimes because of the addiction, um, you know, whether it, sometimes it can predate it, but often it's born of it. it. There becomes this dynamic where everything is centered around this one person fucking up all the time. Right. Right. It, it, you know, in the center, you know, right. Um, I've said this before on, on this podcast and I don't want to know your age, but there used to be a cartoon called mm -hmm. Klondike Cat. Mm -hmm. It used to be under an underdog. And as a kid, I learned something from that that sticks to actually what you're talking about right mm -hmm. now, and that's this. So Klondike Cat was hired to find this mouse called Savoir Faire. Mm -hmm. Stay with me. So in one episode, he basically catches him, uh -huh. has him cornered, about to apprehend him. And Savoir Faire says to Klondike Cat, listen, before you bring me in, once you do, what's going to happen to you? Right. You're not going to be chasing me anymore. <laughs> right. And you're not <laughs> right. going to be hired, and you're not going right. to have a job, and you you let them go. Right. And it's funny. Relationships sort of work that way, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. To your point, you need the wounded person for you to right. feel somehow needed. So right. you don't want them to get better. Yeah. I know? mean, I think I look at like sort of my romantic relationships when I was in active addiction, they were all codependent. And I think that mm -hmm. like to a large extent, those relationships and my addiction relied on that codependency. Right. You know, um, and, and the good thing is, is that when one person changes the dynamic, changes their behavior, it forces the other person to either change their behavior or leave the relationship. Again, right. not necessarily romantic, just whatever you the just, dynamic yeah. is. You, you know, if you stop, it's that, you know, like the same principle of like, if somebody's teasing you and they keep teasing you, if you stop reacting, they're going to stop teasing you. It's not it, because the dynamic is completely deflated. So it's it's so similar in, in, in other types of problematic relationships. So I want to ask you this as a sign off. And again, thank you so much for your time sure. today. And uh, you're a special person to me. Um, I you. think you're saving lives. Um, selfishly, I ask, what's next? Do we have a book? a movie, what, what, you know, what's going on? What's next for you? Sure. So I'm working on something TV related that I can't really talk about yet. No, 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 no. And then um, I'm also working on a novel. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, I want to thank you for being my guest today. Erin Carr, you're just a rock star. And please, I know how to get you, but if people want to find you on social media, where should they look? 
Um, I'm at Aaron Carr on all social media. I'm still on Twitter, although I'm less active there now. Um, but I, on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram there, and then at AaronCarr.com. And then on the Substack, Ask Aaron. Excellent. Which monetize you deserve i know i know change. i know just to, I mean, I, well I, you know i was i was joking with somebody i'm like i pay an illustrator to do the illustrations beautiful by and the I, way and i'm like wait i mean i should at least monetize it so that i'm not paying out of pocket to do right, this right, every right. week yeah exactly i shouldn't <laughs> i shouldn't lose money on no I should break even well yeah. thank you so much and you have a great day thank You're you you too star. bye now bye